I am Citizen 44. Hey everybody, Mark Ahrensberg here. Welcome to Citizen 44. This is show number 74. My guest today is Dan O'Connor. Dan is an actor, director, writer, author, and many other things. And he's a great guy. Really lucky to have him on the show. Did a phone conversation about a month ago, and for some reason, it didn't work technically. I don't know what happened. Serendipitously enough, I'm in LA now. I'm actually here because my mother and father, they've both been ill, but my mother has inoperable cancer that is residing somewhere in her nasal cavity. And my father just finished up his round of radiation treatment for his prostate cancer, which we're not sure what the absolute prognosis is on him, but so far so good. We're hopeful that it's been terminated. But my mother, unfortunately, there is no turning back. It's just a matter of time. And in the interim, I wanted to come and hang out and immerse myself in the experience with her and my father and just help out in any way I can. That's kind of what I've been doing for the past three weeks here in Encino, California. And I'm getting ready to turn around here in a couple of days and head back to Ashland to see my children, take care of a little business, check in, and then figure out what to do from there. Not making any plans, just kind of going with the flow. As Dan O'Connor likes to talk about, doing the way he does his improv. He teaches improv. He magnificently performs improv. Impro here on Los Feliz in Los Angeles. A great group of people doing some incredibly fearless theatrical work. That blows my mind. So that's what's up. It's been a good visit. About three weeks here with my favorite people, the Costanzas. And let's get on with the show. Dan O'Connor. Hi, Mark. How are you this morning, sir? Great. Thanks for being here. I'm in your home. Yeah. So we're here at your house over there in Highland Park doing a show. Yeah. Well, thank you for coming to Highland Park. Yeah. Here we are in an old craftsman. This house is beautiful. It says yes right in front of me. So how could it be wrong? Yes. And I've never really been in this part of Los Angeles. It's terrific. If you go right up the street, at the end of our street is a taco truck and coffee shops and what have you. But it's kind of like Brooklyn and the Mission District in San Francisco had a baby. Did you look at my shirt? My shirt says Brooklyn like three times on it. I don't want to look down because then I can't talk. Five. Five times. Five times. I I don't count good. It's great to see you. I know you because your theater troupe came to Ashland five years ago. I think we were there six or seven times over 10 years. And the last time we were there was probably five years ago. Okay. Yeah. You did a green show. Yeah. And 
I was living right up the hill. I could see the green show practically from my living room. Yeah. And I came down and uh, caught the show and was absolutely blown away by the level of insane spontaneity. And I think I brought my camera. I don't know if I asked you ahead of time. Uh, you didn't, I think, the first time. I think you shot us twice. When we were up there, we did Shakespeare one year. We improvised Jane Austen one year. We did Chekhov and Noir. We did that in the Thomas Theater. And we did Sondheim in the Thomas Theater. Right, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, we've done tons of different styles up there. And that was a great thing, not only to get to see you and hang out, but what terrific audiences. I mean, we had such a good time and packed that little mound of green in the middle of Ashland. It was great. You know, they have a new stage now. Well, I was really happy to see that for the performers who were there because I think we set a record. One of our Shakespeare shows, the temperature on stage at Showtime was 104 degrees. Oh. Now they cancel shows if they go that hot. But uh, yeah, not having any shade or <laughs> whatever. And the Shakespeare stuff that we wore, I think it was a little little heavy. It was super heavy. You yeah. look like those poor doormen in New York. Yeah, it's brutal. Yeah. But we miss Ashland. How come you're not there anymore? I don't know. Uh, well, there's now a new artistic director, so maybe we'll be coming back. Uh, Bill Rausch really liked us. I think they wanted to mix it up. And I think also there's six or seven of us, sometimes with the musicians. We were not a cheap date but um for the six or seven years that we did it it was fantastic and not only did we get to perform but we got to see such great stuff and and hang out and experience ashland at its finest But we've been doing other things like we just did an outdoor Shakespeare show up at Tree People at the top of Coldwater. There's a, a tree preserve park and they have a little amphitheater and we did two shows last weekend for a couple hundred people each. How was that? It was great because it's perfect for Shakespeare. It's in the middle of a bunch of beautiful trees at the top of Coldwater. When you work there, they plant a tree in your name as the actor. So we did that. This weekend, there's a group performing in San Francisco. We're gonna be performing and teaching at Indiana Wesleyan and University of Cincinnati later this year. We had two different shows in Oslo in Norway. I directed shows in Hamburg, Oslo, and London and got to perform in London. So it's been a great year for Impro Theater. Hey, you got a friend coming out here. That's, Who's that? That's Veruca. Veruca Salt? Yeah. She's a cute kitty. Yeah. Impro has been doing terrific. There's a school in Los Feliz which has been growing and expanding and there's shows every weekend there. And then student shows have been everything from improvised Little House on the Prairie to Star Trek. It's terrific because any weekend that you go, there's probably upwards of nine shows over the course of a weekend, three shows a night, different stuff. One student right now, Rebecca Chang, is doing a show called Good Girls which is based on a real lawsuit from the 60s where a group of women who worked for Newsweek or Time sued the magazine because they were writing articles and they were putting male bylines on them. They were putting the guys' names on them. And the women revolted and sued and won. And so she created a show that's all about five years before that, like 1964, 65, and that dynamic of not only gender politics, but also racial politics. So there are people of color in the show. There's this weird parfait of dysfunctional racism and sexism that they investigate doing improv, which is really huh. cool. 
how did Impro start? We were originally a theater sports company up in San Francisco. Bats, which is still there, Bats Improv at Fort Mason. Uh, then it wasn't at Fort Mason, but Ryan Lohman and myself, who were part of Impro here, were part of the founding of Bats up there. And I moved down here within a year of doing that. And within another year, founded LA Theater Sports with my partners, Ellen Idelson, who, who's no longer with us but our diversity scholarship is is named after her. And Forrest Brakeman, and the three of us formed a theater sports company. And theater sports is competitive improv. Keith Johnstone was a director at the Royal Court in the 60s in London. We used to go to wrestling matches and thought, these people know it's fake, and yet they're still cheering. Why can't we get that energy in the theater? Cut to him forming that at the University of Calgary with a bunch of Canadian actors back in the day, I think sometime in the 70s. We started a theater sports group here in 88, and that ran for years and years, and a lot of amazing people came through there, including a lot of the Who's Line guys, Wayne Brady, Brad Sherwood were part of that. Cut to right around 1999, 2000, theater sports had its own theater. I went to New York to do a show there, Keith Johnson's Life Game with Brian, actually. And when we came back, the company didn't want to run a theater anymore, and people wanted to go their different ways, what have you. And we ended up, a small group of us, sort of reforming as Impro Theater. We decided we wanted to do full-length improvised plays in the styles of really good authors use them as the inspiration, and then create something where we used our drama school education because we're all trained actors. Our parents paid for us to go to drama school. We wanted to use those skills. We're all professional actors and writers. So Impro was born out of a want to be a theater company as opposed to an improv troupe. Way back when, it was very hard to get the LA Times or anybody else to review shows because improv was seen as a pejorative. It was seen as a less than art form. And we really had a passion to do theater, unscripted theater. So we started doing Shakespeare, I think 97, something like that. By the time we became Impro Theater, we started doing Jane Austen. We had a, a member come move from London here, Paul Rogan, and he and I directed Jane. And from there, it kind of grew. We started doing Chekhov, Dickens, really investigating those writers and not building a format and not doing a parody, but actually doing an homage to that type of work. So in Chekhov or in Tennessee Williams, we didn't back away from the theater of it. We had two goals when we started. One was we wanted to look out into the audience and not know anybody. Because a lot of improv shows, it's just friends of the people on stage. You start to get trained to do not cheap humor, but, but you're getting laughs that are little sort of three percenters because the person knows you or whatever. And they laugh harder because they're trying to be supportive of you. As opposed to an audience where you don't know anybody and it's either the work works or it doesn't and there's nowhere to hide. The number one rule is we wanted to look out and not see anybody we knew. Number two was we didn't want it to be wanky. We wanted to do, if called upon, to do dramatic improvisation, to do theater, but 
have it not be indulgent and have it not be masturbatory. <laughs> if somebody in a Chekhov play went off stage and shot themselves for that moment to be serious, if that happened, or for the ingenue in a Tennessee Williams play to be crushed by the cruelty of family or the cruelty of tradition or the cruelty of whatever culture they were in, but to be able to get to that point, not back away from it, and do good stories, do good theater. Keith Johnson years ago said, why is it that we just want to make the audience laugh? Why not make them cry? Why not scare them? Why not, why not do all the things that scripted theater does? And we took that, which is why we called our company Impro Theater, and his book is called Impro. And even though we don't do a lot of Keith Johnstone's formats anymore, we do theater sports from time to time, but we have sort of expanded out from Keith's work, the idea of storytelling and truth. We've wanted to get improvisers to realize they can be good actors and get actors to realize they don't need a script. When we first did Chekhov, we brought in some MFA grads from Columbia and Yale who had been serious rep actors and had chops and had not done any improv or very little improv. And their concern was, oh, well, I have to be funny. And the direction that we gave them was, no, you just have to tell the truth. Because if that character that you're portraying is honest, their comedy will come out of the narrative. As opposed to a lot of improvisers who feel like as soon as they see low-hanging fruit in the scene, they want to go for the joke. So what we had to teach the improvisers is to trust that they were good actors or help them to become good actors and not rely on cheap jokes because if you're gagging you keep reminding the audience that you're improvising and you step outside the narrative and when you actually are getting the comedy inside the narrative because of good story that's resonant and that feels written that feels substantive and resonant some improvisers are really good actors some improvisers no matter what you do they're always going to go for the gag so it's finding the right alchemy of people and sometimes there are great improvisers who would not want to do what we do nor would they be good at it like i think robin williams as genius as he was we were talking about this because many people have guested with him and, and been on stage with him but you kind of would need a cattle prod to get him to focus and be present because it's all about getting a laugh it's all about being larger than life and that's great there's nothing wrong with that type of improv there's nothing wrong with bar prov i did bar prov at the laugh factory for nine years what's um, bar prov bar prov is improv for people who are drunk <laughs> and at the laugh factory with their two drink minimum I was part of a group which was all theater sports people called Rot Irony. And we did a bar prop set every Sunday for nine years. And people were hammered. So you're looking for the low hanging fruit. Sure. You're looking for the lowest common denominator. And dick jokes are fast and furious. That's a different skill set, and that's a terrific skill set, and I celebrate that because I love doing that every once in a while. I'll go to an improv festival and get to do the, the late night show where you just let it rip, 
and narrative is just a word. <laughs> The stuff that Impro hopes to do and hopes to continue to expand and investigate is what happens when you do theater without a script and you subjugate yourself to the story. Everything is for story, for story, for story. And that does a number of things. It engages the audience. It makes the ensemble tighter because nobody's competing. You're really invested in the narrative together. You're invested in each other. And that sense of ensemble is huge because really good improv is when you can see that people trust each other on stage. When we do Jane Austen unscripted every year at the Broad stage in Santa Monica, one of the things that always happens is someone will come up to you afterwards and go, well, you planned that part right there, right? You had an idea. It seemed like you knew what she was doing. And no, we don't have a plan. It's all completely in the moment, but we've trust each other so much and we're listening so well to each other that we look like we've planned everything out. And we always say to people, look, if, you, if you're not gonna believe me, come tomorrow night. It's an interesting dynamic in that if we're doing a six week run of a show, they'll come 10, 12 times because it's never gonna be the same show it's always going to be a different experience. It's a very different experience for an audience than regular theater in that not only is it different every night and the improvisers are going to be playing different people every night, different characters and different stories, but the audience has a relationship with the play that normally people don't. When you go see Oklahoma on Broadway, it's, yeah, terrific. I, I paid 150 bucks for the seat, and I know these songs, and it's terrific. And if I come back the next night, I'm going to see the same thing with little bits of variation. But you're an observer as an audience member. When you come to see an impro theater show, you are participant, you are stakeholder. One of your number gave the suggestion or suggestions to us in order to create the theater. One of the things we do when we come out for the second half, we introduce all the characters that have been established and then say, who do you want to see? So there's no way to plan. And the audience will always pick the pain point people to be together. Because they think they're throwing us in the deep end, which they are. But it also is great conflict, great theater, what have you. So we never plan. We never decide who's going to be the hero or who's going to be the villain or anything like that. It all just happens. Sometimes the Jane Austen, there's one hero woman, sometimes there's four. The excitement of doing that kind of theater as an actor is pretty amazing because things are changing from moment to moment and you are reacting in real time. You don't have to act surprised. You are surprised. I remember walking out thinking I was going to be the dashing, young, sort of Darcy-esque character in an improvised Jane Austen and the two women are on stage, turned and went, Father! <laughs> and so I had to gain 30 years in four steps across the stage and become the dad. But that type of thing is terrific. And there are parts of the audience who can see, oh, he came in with some swagger and now he's got to immediately change. And being able to see that change reminds them that it's an improv show. And then they drop back into the narrative and they're watching and they're engaged and they forget that it's improvised.
it's interesting for us in that most scripted theater, people are trying to direct it and act it as if it is happening in the moment for the first time. And for us, we're trying to do that as well, but make you forget that it's being created in real time. So we're actor playwrights. We're writing the play as the audience is experiencing it. And that's fascinating for us. And also for me personally, because I direct a lot of the shows, I have to let go. Once we're into the show, I am no longer a director. Because if you try and manage people during an improv show, it, it always goes wrong. You have to be present with them 100% and go where the story is taking you. I've been in shows where I'm not the director playing with the person who's directing and seeing their struggle. And I identify with that because once the show has started, it's no longer anything to do with you except for what you're putting into it as an actor. Where we are now is trying to figure out what the next step in improvised theater is. What can we do with it? We have a number of things we're trying. We're doing streaming right now. We're doing the show called The Portal, which is inspired by The Twilight Zone, and that's going out on Twitch at five o'clock on Sundays, basically improvised Twilight Zone. We started playing with VR. Since improvisation, you can give an experience to a user that is pretty immediate and visceral. We're also thinking in broader terms, I would like to build an improvisational center that not only teaches improvisers and writers and directors and artists how to create, but also to teach people who work at LAUSD, people who manage a nonprofit or NGOs. So people who teach, people who engage, like the Alan Alda Institute is teaching scientists how to improvise. In fact, there's a conference going on right now at Stony Brook that I was supposed to be part of, but I have work back here. We're trying to use improvisation for public good. I did a TEDx talk about having improv be part of middle school, high school education as a required subject, because as much as people might like algebra and a lot of people who might like these sort of hardcore math and science requirements, which is great, learning how to be spontaneous and tell stories and engage with other human beings is a critical skill and it's not really taught. If you play team sports in high school, you kind of get some of that. It's sort of like tribe building and sort of figuring out who you are. I know there's a, a number of places where you can be on an improv team in high school, which is great because then the kids who aren't physical can still get the same benefit of that human interaction. So we want to try and expand what improv can do. I wrote a book with Jeff Katzman, who's a psychiatrist at the University of New Mexico. And we wrote a book called Life Unscripted, where we take the tenets of narrative improvisation and apply them to everybody's every day. The idea of saying yes and celebrating mistakes, celebrating the risk, because most of us in our everyday lives don't like to risk. We say no from a place of fear. And not that you should say yes to everything, but just the simple concept of yes and in a conversation. If you and I are having a conversation, I'm yes anding what you're putting forth. I am helping to not only make you feel heard, but also we're building on whatever topic you're talking about. I think sometimes yes and can be used as a cudgel and, <laughs> and people get banged over the head with it, but it is a useful tool from time to time to engage with other people. And that's one of the things we talk about in the book is how much we don't allow ourselves to engage. 
and what kinds of things we can do in order to engage, in order to make somebody feel heard, in order to really listen. So much of the time in meetings, brainstorming sessions, people are just waiting for you to finish so they can say what they've been thinking about for five minutes while they haven't been listening to you. We do a lot of work with corporations and with organizations, and when we talk about that, everybody nods their head because everybody's done it. We've all done it. However, what's happening is the purpose of getting that group together to be able to talk and share ideas is for people to actually hear the ideas and build upon them, as opposed to be siloed and just wait for their good idea to come to light. So as soon as we talk about that, we use Yes And. We talk about Patsy Rodenberg, who's an English Shakespeare teacher, voice teacher. And she talks about second circle, which is the idea of being in second circle with somebody is being present for them, them being present for you. A lot of people are first circle, sort of siloed, not letting anything in and not letting anything out. And then there are third circle people who You've been at a party where someone's talking at you and past you. It's kind of like an aerosol can of conversation. They're not really talking to you. They're looking over your shoulder, waiting to see who else is coming in. So first and third circle are helpful in certain things. My friend Joe McGinley, who introduced the concept to our company of second circle from Patsy Rodenberg, she talks about first circle's real helpful if you're getting on a plane. You know, you get in the window seat, you get into first circle, your vibe is... I'm going to rest now. I really don't want to hear about your kids. I'm just going to be here and quiet. And third circle's helpful if you need to clear a theater during a fire or coach Little League. But really, second circle and all of the narrative tools that we're talking about are about really listening to the other person, really seeing them, really hearing them, which is something invaluable for teachers, but it's also invaluable on a third date. A great John Stone quote that I love very much. If you're interested, you're interesting. You mentioned this book is about giving people tools to allow them to actually be more human, to discover more about themselves, to discover more about other people. We're not taught how to be people. We have no idea what we're doing, and this is why we're suffering. We're not given the information so we can make good choices. Yeah, and I think our book is about giving yourself a break make choices. Some are going to be wrong, some are going to be right, but don't punish yourself in the abstract for making that choice. You made a choice. I think people operate from a place of fear most of the time. And as a result, they get calcified in non-action. They don't take chances, they don't take risks because they're petrified of what might happen. But once you realize and own that life is imperfect and you're going to make mistakes, you're more free to make mistakes and understand that making those mistakes creates opportunity. And looking at mistakes as opportunity as opposed to falling into a pit of shame. One of the examples that we use in the book is Jeff talks about calling a colleague the wrong name. He's known her for years, but he called her the wrong name and she corrects him. And he spends the rest of the meeting just sweating. And in his mind, he has cranked it up to a Wagnerian level that it is so detrimental. Of course, she's moved on. You've got my name wrong, okay. We don't allow ourselves to make mistakes and that when we do make mistakes, we plunge ourselves into shame. One of my favorite things that Jeff wrote in the book was the first thing to ask yourself is, is anybody dead? No, nobody's dead. You called somebody the wrong name. So there's a moment of self-investigation, reflection, and hopefully instantaneous, the more you do it. 
and you move on. A yoga practice, you practice yoga. Yoga is imperfect. You're never going to nail yoga. It's not about that. It's about practicing something. Mindfulness, meditation is a practice. I think improvisation is a practice. It's a way to move through the world in a more conscious way and in a more grateful way, in a more forgiving way. And that power, once you begin to practice and understand that, is, is amazing. The number one fear of people in the country is public speaking. And after improvising for all this time, I don't have an issue with getting up in front of a group of people and talking because I can only be me. And as long as I'm okay, even if I screw up, if I fail and knock the water pitcher over on the lectern, and I'm okay with it, they'll be okay with it. It's because we're all mammals. If I'm on stage and I begin to sweat and I'm fumbling with the PowerPoint and I begin to melt down, that's incredibly painful for them because they're watching another monkey in pain. As opposed to, oh, well, the microphone went out, I'll do the rest of the presentation as a mime or, you know, whatever it is. The idea of mistakes as gifts, the idea of celebrating the mistake. Currently, there's a few threads about the use of the word mistake. And for me and for Impro and for Jeff and I's book, what we're talking about is you make mistakes, people make mistakes. You can learn from the mistake, but if you punish yourself, that's all about you, that's all about living with something that to most people doesn't matter. Obviously, if you're a brain surgeon, you can't make mistakes. There are certain aspects of life where you have to be on it, but in normal interaction, people make mistakes. Kids make mistakes, and if you punish them for having made the mistake, they're gonna think twice about doing something the next time, and that, over time, it atrophies a human being. The great Keith Johnstone quote, adults are atrophied children. We've lost the ability to play, because when you play, it doesn't matter, there's no, that was a good play session, that was a bad play session, it was just play. And adults, by and large, don't do that anymore. There's a lot of people who come and take our classes who aren't interested in being on Saturday Night Live. They want to come to a bowling night, book club night type experience where they get to tell stories, they get to laugh real hard, they get to perform, they get to engage with other human beings. And it's good for the soul, it's good for your head to just laugh and be with other people. We could sit here for hours, Mark, talking about the digitization of emotions. This downward facing cell phone, people don't look up, people don't engage. And I read something two years ago about one of the number one attributes of longevity above exercise and diet and things like that was engagement. Engagement, being part of the world. When I go for a walk in Highland Park, I am looking to make eye contact and say hello or good morning. It changes the quality of my walk if I've seen people, if I go for a walk or a hike or something like that. There's a difference in the quality of that experience when I've been able to engage with other people. And that's just saying hi on the street, not doing three hours of improv with them. Also, as a older white guy, there's an idea of what I am coming at them down the street. And when I'm engaged, I'm like, hey, good morning. And a big smile breaks out, people are engaged. There's a moment of, oh, you're a human, I'm a human, that happens. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes people are in their own private Idaho and they, they don't want to deal. But most of the time, people are very happy for that engagement. And I am really happy when someone does it first. 
but it doesn't always happen. It's not a practice, big city living. I know I've done it in New York and people are like, what? There's a different vibe, I guess. I grew up in San Francisco. I grew up in the city. Maybe it's sentimental, but I remember it was a lot more engagement and a lot less tiered. People are so buried in their electronic experience and what you're doing is so important to battle against that. Yeah. Especially for children because they're being indoctrinated immediately. I see babies with cell phones. I just want to fucking cry. <laughs> I can't believe I'm yeah. seeing these little human beings already connected to this device so early on. We are a catastrophe at work right now. Yeah. And what you're trying to do, bringing these human values back into their educational process to have the kinds of skills and tools that we need to get along in the world. Yeah. I feel like we're getting to this breaking point now where it is kind of do or die. We're gonna become so fragmented that the whole thing's just gonna blow up in our face anyway. Yeah. I took a class two years ago from Alexandra Billings. She's an acting teacher at an actor. And one of the things that she had us do, I think the first day was put all of our stuff outside of the room. All phones, everything, just leave it outside the room where we were gonna be working. And to come into the room consciously, take a deep breath, and just be in the space. And her point was, there's nothing you can do during this next two hours or three hours except be here. You can't return that email. It was about being present. If you and I have lunch and we put our cell phones on the table, we lose 25% of what we're saying somewhere in our heads. We're thinking about our cell phones. What I would say about teaching improv in schools or teaching mindfulness in school is about how important it is to be bored, how important it is to be quiet and engage, how important it is not to, as soon as there's any moment or pause, to go to a phone. I was waiting for sandwiches up the street yesterday. It took a little too long for the sandwiches to get made. By the third time that I picked up my phone and looked at it, I was like, nope, I'm gonna sit here and wait. It would be embarrassing to see the bird's eye view of what it is we're doing all the time. Yeah. It looks ridiculous. And then speed it up like a Darren Aronofsky film. We look sick as fuck. Yeah. I would hope that this kind of training, especially in school, but also for adults, like we do at Impro, teaching people to be more present and more engaged is huge. It's also more fun. You feel alive. They've forgotten though. Yeah. We have to remember, which is getting back together. We need yeah. to remember. We don't remember why we're even here. Yeah. I do think being grateful is a big key because it feels like if I'm looking at the phone, I'm looking at the phone, I'm looking at the phone, I am not really paying attention to what's going on. I'm putting my focus somewhere else. And it is about imagery and it is about mental candy of checking baseball scores or whatever. But I'm not being present. And if I'm present, like I managed to get to yesterday, sitting in the sandwich shop, I'm much more alive, I'm much more engaged. Even if I'm just sitting on a bench in a restaurant waiting for a sandwich, it feels somehow more alive. It uh, feels like I'm not wasting my time. And maybe the pendulum may swing in a societal manner that people 
start to understand or start to see how it is that they are stepping away from themselves all the time, stepping away, stepping away. I feel that we're getting bored. Yeah. And we need to exhaust our romanticism with the technology. Yeah. And this is a huge thing as far as the difference between reacting and responding. That, to me, is the key not only to doing the work on stage, but it's the key to engagement. The idea of responding goes back to yes and, that I'm going to hear what you're saying, I'm going to take it in, and I'm going to respond to you. I have heard you, which signifies to you that you've been heard. I'm building on your idea, I'm discussing your idea, I'm challenging your idea, whatever it is. Your idea is part and parcel of what I am saying. improvisers, you can see, they've been thinking about the good thing they're going to say. They're planning, they're planning, they're planning. Because they're worried about risking, they're worried about being vulnerable. And some of the best improvisation in the world is when you are vulnerable. People go to movies to watch other people be changed. And we don't want to change very much in real life. And yet, life is change. And when you get good at being okay by being changed, you're going to have more experiences, what have you. So trying to talk to a beginning improviser and going, we came here to watch you be changed. And if you continue to just be recalcitrant and first circle or whatever it is, there's nothing for us to watch. Narrative, we create a protagonist, we watch them be changed. And of course, there are some narratives where we don't see people change that much over the course of the play. Dealing with Chekhov, it's relationship, relationship, relationships. But we still get to see those people move inside of their personalities, their wants, their dreams, whatever it is. We get to see them be changed by that. And maybe they're not particularly changed overall, but in those moments, they're being changed. And when we talk to beginning improvisers, I will say something like, if you do nothing in this scene but listen to them and respond, and that may mean not saying anything, it may mean just the way you listen. You may be the most interesting thing in the scene because we're genuinely watching you have a genuine moment, tell the truth. Johnstone talks about as soon as people get on stage, they put up a wall. So he says, be average, fail good, fail a lot. Don't worry about being good. There's a Johnstone game, Mark, that's awesome. And I will sometimes play it with beginning improvisers where I'll ask two people or three people to improvise a scene and they improvise a scene and they're trying to be funny and they're really working it. They're trying, trying in quotations. And then I will give them an adjustment and have them do the scene again. I won't tell the rest of the students what the adjustment is. And they play the scene again, but this time it's more thoughtful, it's more calm, it's more interesting. They seem to be listening to each other. And the audience is like, yeah, the second version was really good, it was really good. What did you tell them? And the teacher will have told them, be boring, be boring. Don't worry about performance, be boring. Don't curl up on the floor and go to sleep or be apathetic. Just don't try. Well, that's it. Be more interested, less interesting. Yes. Let someone else have the spotlight. Let someone else be vulnerable. Yeah. Let someone else express themselves. Just respond to that. Yeah. You don't have to be that. You yeah. don't have to do the work for them. 
people are their own worst enemy sometimes in terms of trying as opposed to just being. Well, they're afraid to be authentic. We have no idea how incredible we are individually. Right. This is the most incredible opportunity that you have to be you. Yeah. You are amazing. But if you keep trying to be something else, you'll never find out who you are. And what a tragedy to not even discover your own self. Yeah. And even the word mistake is a mistake. You get multiple takes when you're making a movie. Right. Okay, that was good, but we're gonna try this this time. No one punishes you for your mistake. You get to do another take. Right. Well, in life, you get to do it over as many times as you want. Try it again. Right. Try it differently. Yeah, do it again, do it different. Whether this improv institute in my mind ever gets built, I hope just based on where the improv community is now, because there's the Applied Improv Network, there's any number of consultants and people running around on the planet teaching other people improv. I hope that it becomes more pervasive and more embedded in how we relate to each other. When we first started teaching corporate stuff in the 90s, everybody had a lot of money. So they could take a chance on something as weird and outside the boxes, improvisation as a communication tool or as a team building tool or whatever it is. But now all these major corporations and small places as well bring in improv teachers to work because they can see how it affects the bottom line, how people are more engaged. It used to be you get a job, you work for Westinghouse for the next 40 years. Now you may not only change jobs, but you may change careers five, six times in your life. You have a portfolio of jobs. And what a better way to go through life than to be able to think quickly on your feet, be adaptable, be somebody that is able to be engaged wherever you are. I think improvisation is a tool for the next thousand years. One of the first classes Jeff and I taught together because he's a member of the New Mexico Association of Psychiatrists. I'm not sure of the exact name, but it was a group of therapists, psychiatrists, psychologists. And we did a workshop for them about this stuff. And the bells and the lights that were going off, pretty amazing because it does lend itself to therapy and to that sort of practice of listening and engagement in a way that maybe is going to change the way people deal with their patients. And it certainly seemed to be impactful. In fact, that's the reason why we wrote the book. When Jeff was first taking class with me, he was doing his residency at the VA in Westwood. So he was working with guys who had PTSD and he was teaching them improv games that I taught him. So we talked about the book for 20 years because we knew there was crossover and he lives in New Mexico, I live in LA. So we'd get together at Christmas and have a coffee and catch up. And finally, about three, four years ago, we went, we have to write this book. We keep talking about it, we gotta do it. So we did it. We're gonna write another one as well. But it is that idea of now him seeing stuff from the standpoint of being a psychiatrist and me seeing it in terms of working with organizations who are not actors. Some of our guys have worked with everyone from the U.S. ski team to Facebook and Cisco and DreamWorks and Disney. I taught a group of engineers at Cisco. These are people who are very precise in their thinking and the idea of talking to them about play and chaos is fascinating, fascinating. And it does get people to look at things differently. Now, whether that change is resonant and lasting, I don't know, but in the moment, it certainly gets them to engage with each other in a way that they normally don't. You talked about practice. You yeah. cannot do a one-off. Right. People need to get in the mode 
of taking care of themselves, whether it's their diet, however they're conducting themselves. If you get people to go into a practice where they're identifying with themselves all the time and knowing that they have to do something. I mean, people go to church on Sunday and kill on Monday. Yeah. You really need to immerse yourself in a behavior modification practice. Sure. If you want something to change, you have to be willing to invest the time. If you want to get better at something, if you want to get better at being you, you have to invest the time. Yeah. And I think people have confused themselves into thinking they don't have the time. I had someone on the show who's now a city councilwoman in Ashland and she preaches the crap out of meditation. And people say, well, I don't have time. And she said, I saw you on Facebook for 45 minutes. You have time. <laughs> you have to make the time. Yeah. You have to prioritize your time based on the importance and what you get out of it. I think we're a little confused on how we spend our time. Sure. And we're really not ultimately taking care of ourselves anymore. No. And you have to start with you. Yeah. And then you can help everybody else. Yes. Put the oxygen mask on yourself first. And that's what I tell people. <laughs> There's a reason they do that. If you're choking on your own shit, you can't help anybody else. Yeah, yeah. And I think your book is going to be part of that. But again, you're, you have to hope that someone's picking it up. Yeah. I think we've sold 3,000 copies and it's being translated into German as we speak. So I think it resonates and I think people are interested in it. Improv is mindfulness on your feet, especially if you can meditate and do improv. It keeps bringing stuff back to you, back to you, back to you so that you can be present. We need people to support us and champion us to do the work. We're not gonna do it on our own, most of us. We're just not, we're not motivated. It's too easy to turn on the TV. It's too easy to turn on the phone. It's just like even in AA, you need a sponsor. Yeah. Every human being needs a sponsor. <laughs> we do, we need someone to say, hey man, did you do that today? Yeah. We need reminders so we can remember. Yeah. And I think it's important that we have people like you and a lot more people willing and able to pick up a phone and say, did you do that exercise today until it becomes an imprint? Yeah. You've convinced all your cells, this is what we're gonna do neurotransmitting you are in charge of transmitting information to your neurotransmitters so they can let the rest of your being know this is what we're going to do now and this is the 21 days make or break a habit if you tell your body this is what we're going to do and you follow through and do it for 21 days that's what you're going to do whether that's quitting smoking or starting any kind of behavior pattern if you get into a practice of a certain amount of time. And scientifically, they say 21 days is the number that if you do this for 21 days, you will achieve that result. It's automatic and guaranteed. All right. But you must commit to the practice. I don't think people know that if they do something for a certain amount of time, transferring this information to every cell in their body, that's taking control. This is not life is pushing you around. Yeah. Alan Watts says you push life around. There are very few unavoidables. Almost everything is avoidable. And that's pain and suffering, the whole thing. But you have to actually be willing to take control and do the work that's necessary to achieve the results that you want. If you find anybody who's successful, they're working 80 to 100 hours a week on trying to achieve something. Yeah. And if they're not, then they're not. Right. We are in charge. Yeah. You're in charge of your destiny. It's nobody else's fault if you're failing. Yeah. You've made a choice to not follow through and do something. That's the self-reflective mechanism that we don't do. We're not stopping and contemplating what the fuck we do every day. Yeah, yeah. Do you know the four agreements? No, I've heard of the four agreements. Don Miguel Ruiz. Okay. The four agreements are number one, be impeccable with your word. 
Say what you mean, mean what you say, really consider what these things are that you're saying, mm -hmm. because they not only affect you, they affect everything and everybody around you. Number two, don't take anything personally. What other people do is what they're doing. It has nothing to do with you. Number three, don't assume anything. Get the story, find out. Don't build a story in your head because that's another suffering mechanism. We didn't hear from someone for a couple of days. I do this to myself. If I think there's something wrong, I manufacture a story and punish sure. myself. Now I feel like shit, but I did it to myself. Yeah. And the fourth, of course, is obvious. Do the best you can. With every thought, feeling, word, through those filters every day, you will never suffer. Yeah. What is the name of your book? Life Unscripted. It's by Jeff Katzman and Dan O'Connor. Where can we find that book? It's on Amazon. It's published by North Atlantic Books out of Berkeley. You can find it on their website, should you not want to buy things from Amazon. I think it's also on Apple Books. There's also an audio book that yours truly reads. And the other book that I would plug is Patsy Rodenberg's The Second Circle, which is about voice, but it's also about engagement. And Keith Johnstone's Impro, which all this started from. It's a great book, even if you are not a theater practitioner. How do we find out more about Impro? Improtheater.com. I-M-P-R-O-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.com. There's live streaming on Twitch of our show, The Portal, 5 p.m. Pacific Standard on Sundays. Also, there are many, many classes. If you are local, in December, we're doing Jane Austen Unscripted at the Broad Stage in Santa Monica. And... We'll also be doing Noir up in San Francisco at the new Presidio Theater in November, a co-production with Bats Improv up there. Also, I'll be teaching in Vancouver at the uh, International Theater Sports Institute Festival hosted by Vancouver Theater Sports, and I believe that's October 13th through the 18th. Shows, classes, teachers from all over the world, some really good teachers and really great performers. And I'll be teaching at Indiana Wesleyan in November as well as, I think, the University of Cincinnati. And last but not least, in January, second week of January 2020, we have a thing in L.A. called Winterfest, and we're going to have theater companies from Oslo, the Andertat, which is the other theater, which is a terrific improvisational theater company, as well as teachers from around the world. Winterfest is at our little studio space in Los Feliz. And there's shows every weekend at the studio. There are student shows, guest shows, the main company right now is doing a play unscripted every Saturday night at 7.30, and that is a modern, contemporary play, sort of like Tracy Letts or Yasmina Reza or uh, a Rajiv Joseph type of play. We get a suggestion from the audience of something modern, and we do a two-hour play. Wow. Yeah. That's so impressive. I think it's honestly the bravest entertainment there is. Another great John Stone quote, which we could have made for t-shirts, is, get out of your way, it's none of your business. When you're really having a good show, you are not deliberating or managing your thoughts at all. It is flow. Just like basketball or any other second circle activity, dancing, what have you, you are just present. And really good improv, especially really good narrative improvisation, is very much mindfulness. Appreciate your time, Dan. It was super cool to redo this and actually do it face-to-face -face versus on the phone. So much better. I think this one was better, Mark. Oh, no, it, it's much better. <laughs> Not that there was anything wrong with the no, other no, one. No, no, but it's better to be present. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Mark.
Well, that's the show. I hope you enjoyed it. It was really awesome to actually go to Dan's home. This is my first remote recorded conversation with anybody outside of the Ashland area. And I think it went pretty well. I want to thank my mom and dad, of course, as always. They let me come hang out here and disrupt their program, sleep on their couch. And it really has been an extraordinary experience. It's not always easy, of course, as you know, to go home to your parents. My father and I have our bits of this and that. But overall, there's nothing quite like the people that brought you into the world. And I would stay. But one, I've got to check in with my children. And I need to figure out what I'm going to do next. My daughter is going off to OSU in Corvallis, Oregon on September 22nd, so I need to be there for that. I actually bought a ticket for my ex-wife and I to go to see an 80s show at the Brit in Jacksonville the day after what would be our 30-something wedding anniversary. I bought us a couple tickets to go to this 80s show, and one of the headliner bands is The Motels, Martha Davis, who of course has done the show. You might want to check that out. Shout out to Rachel Sunday, my sister. This past Thursday, I went and helped her out on Venice Beach at One Rose in the parking lot for the power of a shower. Super fun, meeting people and just watching them walk in a door one way and come out feeling another way. It's magic, fresh and clean, new start, just sweet human beings. We all want the same stuff. We want to feel loved. We want to feel safe. We want to feel fed, protected, housed. We want to feel good. And that's not happening for everybody. So props to my sister, Rachel, for getting out there with her husband, Aaron, her daughter, Haley, and getting it done. Citizen 44 with Mark Ahrensberg is a listener-supported presentation. Thank you so much for listening. You can check out all the shows on CastBox, iTunes, and Stitcher. Also, visit citizen44.com online and you can click through to CastBox where I'd love for you to become a subscriber and let me know that you like the show. Appreciate the comments, all the comments and feedback. That's it for me. You will hear back from me again in Ashland. All right, take care. Bye-bye. Thank you, Sam, Zoe, and Val. If whatever you're doing is not working, there's one way you can change that, and that's to change what you do, 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 change what you do. Yes. I am Citizen 44.